excited to jump back into this uh, series on Acts. As a matter of fact, you can join me now in Acts chapter 12. And these journals that, uh, that uh, Michelle was referring to, yeah, Betty has one over here. They really are like, um, Crossway has done a fantastic job of putting these together. It's the text on one side with, with a page for notes on the other. And so it's just a wonderful way, even in your own personal devotions and Bible time, it's just a wonderful way to be able to, to read the Bible and have your thoughts and notes right there uh, parallel to the passage. And I would just encourage, uh, I think they have them for all of the New Testament books. Is that right? And, and then the Old Testament will be out shortly. So it's just a wonderful addition to your devotional library. One of, uh, one of life's most comforting truths is that of God's providence, even when we don't recognize it as such. Uh, in theological terms, providence refers to God's superintending activity over human actions and human history, bringing creation to its divinely determined goal. More personally, it simply refers to how God oversees every aspect of our lives, the good and the not good, and he works all of these things for the ultimate good of those who love him and are called by him. Today, as we return to our study in the book of Acts, we see God's providence on full display. Now, divine providence is on every page, of course, and Acts 12 is really no exception. But in this chapter, we find ongoing opposition to the Christian movement, intense persecution and martyrdom and unjust imprisonment. There is divine intervention and human engagement uh, that, that result in miraculous deliverance. Uh, here we see the best in people and some of the very worst, including the fatal and sudden effects of unchecked sin in a person's life. And yet through it all, in good times and bad, the gospel of Christ marches on victoriously, for the hand of providence is strong and steady. And so I want to read this. You can read this with me. We're going to, we're going to take the whole chapter today in one uh, sweeping account, Acts chapter 12, I'll read the whole chapter. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and 
sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me, from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and, and went to another place. Now when day came... There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you, as we often do, as we, as we always try to remember doing. We just want to thank you for the gift of your word the fact that you are a speaking God, you are a, commun a God who communicates with us, who reveals to us more of your will and more of your heart. And so we thank you for, again for this time we share this morning in your word. We're grateful, Father, that, that these, these words we read in Acts chapter 12 are so much more than a record of what happened so many years ago. They are, they are truth, and they are equally effective 
at imparting truth into our lives today, informing us and guiding us and helping us to live as you have designed and created us to live even now. And so would you please uh, give us the grace, all the grace necessary to, um, to hear your voice today. Would you, would you stir our minds and our thoughts? Would you, would you affect our hearts? And would you change our lives? We pray that you would speak to us, God, corporately, collectively, as a church. And then, Lord, I would just pray for each person here that you would speak to us individually as well. And, and bring comfort where comfort is needed. Bring conviction where conviction is needed. Bring grace and peace where grace and peace are needed. And above all, would you grant us faith that we would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and cling to him always. We thank you in his name. Amen. So it's the year... 43, maybe 44. It's springtime, and the city of Jerusalem is teeming with people. It's Passover, that time of the year when the Jewish people gather to remember their, uh, to remember and celebrate their deliverance from Egyptian bondage. Ironically, though, those who understand Passover the most. Christians who have come to see how it points to Jesus and to how he delivers us from sin and death uh, are in fact facing death by the hands of sinful men. I'm referring to those in the church, of course, to those who follow Christ. And this morning, as we walk through this chapter together, I want to make, I thought a lot about how to approach this chapter. And, um, and I want to do it this way. I want to make five observations uh, about the Christian life and God's providence along the way. Five observations about the Christian life from Acts chapter 12 and God's providence throughout. And the first point is this. Being a Christian comes with cost. Being a Christian comes with cost. And I get this from verses 1 through 3. The chapter begins in the most unpleasant way. King Herod, this is Herod Agrippa I. King Herod was laying, it says he was laying violent hands on members of the church. He had James executed. Now James was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, a close friend of Jesus, <clears throat> along with his brother John, and his friend Peter, James, was one of the three often mentioned in the New Testament Gospels who seemed to share a particularly close friendship with Jesus. He was a leader in the church and well-respected, and Herod, we aren't told why exactly, uh, but Herod had him killed by the sword, which is a way of saying that James was beheaded. He was martyred for his Christian faith. And this pleased the Jews, notice. Meaning, the, the, meaning those who sat in, in seats of Jewish power took pleasure in the persecution of Christian believers. 
And when Herod saw this, when he saw that he could gain political favor by pandering to Jewish constituents, he arrested the apostle Peter also uh, with the intent to kill him too once Passover had passed. So clearly this was just a, an outright attack on the church and specifically on church leadership, an attempt to strike the shepherd and scatter the sheep. I want us to imagine how difficult it must have been to belong to the church at that time. And maybe the best way to do that is just to imagine it happening to our church today. If some of our members, even when we saw each other on Sunday mornings or throughout the week at life groups, if some of our members, if you could tell, beaten and bruised and swollen and bloody, that they had been the victims of violent hands. If one of our leaders was killed in such a violent way, if another of our leaders was violently arrested and being held without cause, now wouldn't we be terribly upset? We'd be shocked, we'd be grieving, but then to see and hear the outside world taking pleasure in our pain, celebrating our pain, that would only add to the pain uh, exponentially. And though this hasn't happened in our particular church like this, it is happening in churches around the world to this very day. Being a Christian is not easy. It has never been easy. Listen, we should never expect it to be easy. Being a Christian, it is a far better life. But it is not an easy life, by no means. Belonging to and identifying with Christ's church is costly. Like the members of the church in Acts 12, it may bring you opposition from others. You may be ridiculed at work or school, neighborhood. You may experience violence of some sort. It may cost you your freedoms like Peter. It may even cost you your life like James. Sin has so diseased the human heart that our natural inclination is to oppose the will and work of God. It's been this way from the very beginning, from the fall itself, and it continues to be this way today. So it just, it shouldn't surprise us as Christians that we are in a battle between right and wrong. It's a spiritual battle. It's not against flesh and blood. It's what we're told. It's against spiritual forces. 
between right and wrong, between the way of God and the way of the world. Jesus once said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you're not of the world, and because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. And then he said, listen, listen, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. And then he continues, but I've said these things so that in me you may have peace. In other words, there's something about knowing it up front. There's something about knowing what you're getting into and just admitting it and accepting it that brings peace. That in me you may have peace. Listen, in this world you will have tribulation, Jesus says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Taking heart in this way builds trust in the Lord which leads to my second point. My second observation is this. Number two, trusting Christ means entrusting yourself to Christ. And I get this in verses, from verses four through 11. Trusting Christ means entrusting yourself to Christ. I think we see this in how Peter responded to his imprisonment. Verse 4, that Cedar, uh, verse 4 says that Peter was put in prison and delivered over to four squads of soldiers. Now, that's, that's 16 soldiers. That's four squads of four soldiers each. 16 men specifically trained for this sort of thing. A 16 to 1 ratio that obviously stacked the odds in Herod's favor. Herod wasn't taking any chances, and Peter's prospects weren't very good. But amazingly, look at this with me. When we read about Peter in verse 6, what's he doing? He's sleeping. He is fast asleep. His arms are chained to two soldiers, one soldier on each arm, while additional soldiers are stationed at the door. But Peter, on the very night of his probable execution, was sleeping like a baby. Sleeping so well, in fact, that the angel who came to rescue him actually had to jostle him awake and tell him to get up. Get up quickly, the angel said in verse 7. Dress yourself, Peter. Put on your, your sandals, he said in verse 8. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Now, church, let's think through this a minute. If that were me, I guarantee you I would not need this instruction. If, if, because if, if my friends were the victims of violent hands. And one of my best friends, James, was, was recently beheaded. 
And now I'm being imprisoned without cause and awaiting probable execution. And if some, someone suddenly appeared to rescue me, I wouldn't need to be told to get up and get out. Honestly, I wouldn't even need to be told to get dressed because I wouldn't even care that I was dressed. All I'd care about in those moments is rescue. Right? And Peter is miraculously rescued, as, as we read in verses 9 through 11, but it's so surreal to him that even he thought he was dreaming or just having a vision as if he's seeing himself be rescued, but in, in fact was still sleeping, not until the angel leads him out of prison and into the city, then leaves him on the side of the street, does Peter realize that it's real. Let me ask you, what does this say about Peter in this moment? And what can we learn from him? That he was sleeping, at, at, at sleeping so soundly at, at such a time as this, that he was miraculously delivered yet didn't even realize it was happening. And to me, it says that he had come to a place, I'm talking about deep in his heart, to the depths of his soul, he had come to a place uh, in his life where he had fully entrusted himself to God. You know, the word entrust can be defined as putting something into someone's care or protection. In this case, the something is Peter's life while the someone is God. In other words, Peter had put his life and his well-being into God's care and protection. And because he'd entrusted himself to God in this way, the peace of God was ruling his heart even while he was in prison and awaiting execution. No wonder he would later encourage Christians scattered throughout uh, Asia Minor, who were being persecuted for their faith too, he would encourage them by saying in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, he would say, loved ones, church, people, listen, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Listen, he would say, listen, he said to them, listen, Cast all your anxieties on God. Give him all of it. Give him everything. All your anxieties, all your care. Give him your entire life and well-being. Cast it all upon God because God cares for you. I think when Peter wrote those words... He was speaking from personal experience. He had come to that place where he had given it all over to the Lord. And the best and only way, really, the only way to effectively cast our anxieties on him is evidenced in how the church responded to Peter's situation. Meaning that number three, this is point number three, <clears throat> prayer 
is essential, as imperfect as our prayers may be. Prayer is essential, as, in, as imperfect as our prayers may be. And I get this from verses 12 through 17, but really it begins in verse 5. <clears throat> in verse 12, though, the account moves from divine deliverance to a very human church. It's just a, it's a wonderfully human church, to a church in prayer. I mentioned earlier that all around us rages a spiritual battle, and, and here, though, here we see the difference in weaponry used in this battle. For Herod, the weapon was political power, intimidation, brute force. For the church, however, it is the power of God through prayer. Though things appeared bleak and dire, and maybe even because things appeared bleak and dire, the church responded with prayer. <clears throat> At its root, prayer is an act of trust in the power of God. It is, it is trusting in the power, I would even say in the person, in the character of God. Power, a prayer is dependence upon God. Prayer is an admission that God is God and we are not. It is the acknowledgement that he sees it all, that he knows it all, that he can accomplish whatever he chooses. So, so when the chips were down, the church went all in through prayer. Not as an act of desperation, but in the belief that with God, all things are possible. Now what can... Actually, it just dawned on me... I, probably shouldn't use gambling metaphors in church. Forgive me for that, but when the church, they, they just went, they went, whatever the equivalent to all in, they just went all in. <laughs> what can be learned from this church's prayer? kind of prayer was it verse 5 calls it earnest prayer meaning that the people they weren't just going through the motions they were seeking hard after God in a heartfelt way it was intercessory prayer they were praying specifically for Peter obviously uh, we can bring our needs before God too, obviously, definitely. But this was a time to bring the needs of another. It was persistent prayer. From the time Peter was arrested and imprisoned in verse 5 until he showed up at Mary's house in the middle of the night in verse 12, the people prayed. Not just for a moment or two, but but really for hours on end, apparently. It was corporate prayer. Verse 12 says that many were gathered together and were praying. Now, surely God hears us when we go to him individually. But when we come together, 
to share our burdens before the Lord as one, I think there's something about corporate prayer that amplifies the power of the request being made. So it was earnest prayer, it was intercessory prayer, it was persistent prayer, it was corporate prayer, but, but there's something here that I think may be the most telling thing of all. That it was imperfect prayer. The whole scene at Mary's house in the middle of the night, when you kind of step back, it's, it's actually kind of comical. Peter arrives and knocks at the door. <clears throat> Rhoda recognizes his voice, but she's so excited that she neglects to answer the door. So she runs to the door, hear Peter's voice on the other side of the door. Oh my goodness, it's Peter. Turns and runs back into the house to tell the, the group that Peter's at the door. She leaves Peter there, tells them they don't believe her. They accuse her, actually, of being crazy. Rhoda, you're out of your mind. She insists, no, 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 it's Peter's voice. It's him. And you get this idea that there's kind of like a little exchange going on where it's something like, oh, sweet Rhoda. Sweet little misguided Rhoda. That's not Peter. It can't be Peter. It's just his angel. As if that would be any less amazing. <laughs> right? Meanwhile, Peter's knocking at the door, tap, 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 until they finally open it to see that it is him. But look at this. They're completely surprised by it. Though they were praying for Peter, presumably for Peter's release, it seems they didn't actually believe he'd be released. At least not in that way or at that time. Have you ever prayed for something while doubting that it would actually happen. I think that's basically what's going on here. Praying, the church is praying because they believe in prayer and they do believe that prayer matters. They do believe that prayer makes a difference. But there's also this, this lingering unbelief that just leaves that thread of doubt that your prayers are really making a difference. They are surprised by the fact that God had actually answered their prayers. And what I find so encouraging about this is that their prayer life is as imperfect as ours is today. 
I take comfort here because prayer can be intimidating. It can be unsettling. Uh, I never feel like I'm praying very well. I always feel like, like I'm a beginner prayer. I always, it, to me, it always feels like an exercise in, I believe, Lord, I believe. Will you help this area of unbelief? And because prayer is an act of faith in God, it has a way of exposing those parts of me that are depending on other things. And yet God still inclines his ear in our direction. Still he hears the the burdens of our hearts and he acts in accordance with what's best, however imperfect our prayers may be. Such good news. And therefore God gets all the glory. Not because I'm a great or we are great prayers and we offer great prayers. Because, but because we are imperfect prayers and we offer imperfect prayers but we offer them to a perfect God and he gets all the glory which leads to my fourth point number four our greatest demise is the pursuit of self-glory instead of God's glory. Our greatest demise is the pursuit of self-glory instead of God's glory. And I get this from verses 18 through 23. You can imagine the terrible surprise of the soldiers when they awoke the next day to discover that Peter was gone. They knew what this meant. They knew. Everyone knew that if a prisoner escaped on your watch, you were held personally accountable. And so when Herod couldn't find Peter and when the guards couldn't explain why, he had them killed instead. And then, wanting to get away from it all, he left the region of Judea for Caesarea, which, which kind of was his home away from home, kind of a vacation spot of sorts. But trouble followed him there, as we can read, and he grew angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, these two neighboring cities, and apparently the discord escalated to the point where Herod um, restricted or threatened to restrict their food supply. And so they appealed, the people appealed to Herod's assistant, a man named Blastus, and it seems that Blastus arranged a day in which the people could express their unwavering support of Herod to Herod himself. So on the appointed day, the king, he just dressed to the nines in all of his royal robe, royal robes, and he took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered this, this, uh, this, this oration, this great speech to the people. It was just a great show. You get the sense here, it's just a, it's full of pomp, it's full of pretense, and the people were basically just feeding into Herod's insatiable ego. Right? kind of one of those things of tell him what he wants to hear just tell him what he wants to hear so that he'll do what we want him to do what a great speech that was they said 
What a great king you are, they flattered. In fact, you're better than a king. You're a god. And Herod, he just soaked it all up. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Just basking in self-glory. And at the height of this great show of unbridled pride and arrogance, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Now, secular, non-biblical sources confirm this. Josephus, for example, a Jewish historian who recorded this very event, he actually says that Herod showed up and his robes were lined with silver and they just glistened in the sun. You can imagine the sunlight hitting these robes that are just lined with, I'm just glistened in the sun and it was a huge show. And he said that at this point, severe pain immediately arose in Herod's belly. And it became so violent that Herod, attendants, had to come out to where Herod was seated on the throne in front of the people. Attendants had to come out and carry Herod back into his palace where he died five days later. Scholars believe that this was likely due to an intestinal blockage brought on by intestinal worms, which coincides with Luke's assessment here in verse 23, that Herod was basically eaten by worms. And the reason for this, according to this verse, is because he failed to give God the glory. His ravenous pursuit of self-glory, exalting himself as if he was God, led to his demise. And so it's important for us to consider whose glory do you seek most? Yours or God's? I think sometimes we think of sin as being the little things. Oh, just the little things we, we do that we probably shouldn't, but really <clears throat> they're not that big of deal in the, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I probably shouldn't do that. Probably shouldn't think that. Probably shouldn't say that. Probably shouldn't watch that. Probably shouldn't listen to that. Probably shouldn't engage in that. But really, it's really no big deal. And I think this serves as a a lesson and a warning for us that sin runs much deeper, that, that really it's about who you live for, ultimately. Do you live for yourself, for your plans, for your pleasures, or do you live for God, for His plans, and for what 
pleases him. When the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death, it's warning us that sin is not to be minimized, that it's a clear affront to God and to the purposes for which we've been created. Apart from God, listen, apart from God, we will always pursue self-glory when given the opportunity. Always. We're like Herod in this way. And so we must learn from his error and not neglect the grace of God and the gospel of Christ because, my fifth and final point here, the work of the word cannot be stopped by the way of the wicked. The work of the word cannot be stopped by the way of the wicked. And and this is uh, verses 24 and 25. Herod was a wicked man whose ways were wicked, Uh, and in whose family there was a history of wickedness. Let me just walk through this family a little bit with you. His grandfather, Herod the Great, was king when Jesus was born. So this is the one who ordered the massacre of all the young boys in and around Bethlehem in the attempt to kill Jesus, who he perceived to be a threat to his throne. Herod's uncle, Herod Antipas, was the one who beheaded John the Baptist. He's the one who tried Jesus. Remember, Pontius sent him to Herod. He's the one who tried Jesus, kind of mocked and made fun of Jesus, then sent him back to Pilate, who condemned him to death. Herod's son, Herod Agrippa II, uh, is the one who will try the Apostle Paul, as we'll see later in our study of the book of Acts. So it's no surprise that, that this Herod mentioned here in Acts 12, Herod Agrippa I, was, was laying violent hands. It's no surprise. He comes from a family of violence. He has a history of violence. It's no surprise that he's laying violent hands upon the church, that he's beheading James, that he's imprisoning Jesus, or imprisoning Peter. Here we have four wicked kings who came against Christ and Christ's church in some way. They had worldly power. They had influence by human standards. Listen, they could do whatever they wanted and get away with it. And yet the lesson here is no amount of kingly power can dethrone Christ the King who is sovereign over all. No amount of kingly might can withstand the mighty advance of Christ's gospel. Verse 24, But the word of God increased and multiplied. This brief statement, I just think it's just such a contrast between the defeat of King Herod and the victory of the gospel of Christ. The kings of the earth are brought low while the gospel takes more ground. Herod is dead, but the word of God is alive today and still brings new life to new people who hear the good news of Jesus Christ and call upon Him as Lord. 
This brief statement, in, that is verse 24, it captures the essence of the entire book of Acts, the entire New Testament, and in fact, the entire Bible, because the Bible is God's word to us that tells of all that he has done to rescue us back to himself and all that he is doing and all that he will do. It is the word of life that tells how a life of sin and ruin can be transformed through Christ by the power of the Spirit of God. So it's no coincidence that the chapter closes in this way by, in, uh, by emphasizing the increase of the word of God. The hands of providence are always in motion. And in verse 25... They carry Barnabas and Saul and a young man named John Mark. We'll hear more about him later. They carry, they carry these men from Jerusalem to the city of Antioch, which sets the stage for worldwide missions. As, as we will see next week and in the chapters to follow, the church in Antioch becomes the center of operation for a, a, a global endeavor to take the gospel to new lands and new peoples everywhere. Our lives are in God's hands. Being a Christian is costly, but trusting Christ means entrusting yourself to Christ. Prayer is essential, as imperfect as our prayers may be, so let's turn from self-glory to instead glory in God because the work of his word cannot be stopped by the way of the wicked. Amen? Amen. Father, we want to thank you for our time, for speaking to us in these moments. You've been very kind to us. We just trust that our ears have been opened to your voice our hearts have been receptive to your truth and that our lives are ready and willing to have this applied and so make us to be people who go forth who understand the cost but find peace in Christ and therefore we entrust ourselves to Christ make us to be people a praying people as imperfect as our prayers are make us to be a people who who turn from this ever-present temptation to pursue self-glory so that we might be freed to glory in you instead. And the Lord, make us to be a people who engage in the work of the gospel because the work of your word, no, it cannot be stopped by the way of the wicked. Thank you for being uh, providential and sovereign over every aspect of our lives. We hail you as King, King Jesus, and ask that you take your throne upon our hearts.